0: morning. Now, uh, since I am a bad American, I was not thinking about the fact that this is 4th of July week. But since it is, like a good Christian will be preaching out of the Declaration of Independence. I see shaking. I guess we don't do that here. Whoops. Um, (laughs) But today, or I guess this week, we are going to be able to celebrate the birth of our country. And I mean, hey, the United States is definitely not perfect by any stretch. But there have been extraordinary benefits to being able to live in this country. Things like free worship. And I mean, you can't ignore the affluence of this country. God's been generous to us by even allowing us to live here. But also there's no other country that I personally would rather minister in. Each of us has been placed in the United States so that we can minister to Americans as Americans. And we can have this week be a reminder of that. So. Additionally, uh, I am not bald, I'm not the typical speaker this week. The typical speaker is driving his son across the country to Virginia, so you've got me. My name is John Horning, and I am the youth director here at Foothills Church, and today we're going to be talking about the book of Ruth. We're going to be going through the entire thing, so I'm going to try not to go too long, but if you can turn there to Ruth chapter 1, and as you turn there, I'm going to tell you a little bit about biblical historical narrative. Now, in the Bible, uh, a lot of the Bible is history. It's telling stories of people's actual lives. And one of the things that's very important as you read biblical narrative, specifically historical narrative, is you need to pay attention to the way that God is interacting with people in these stories. The reason that historical narrative is important is because God doesn't change. The same God that created the world is the same God that was at work in the Old Testament, is the same God that was at work in the New Testament, is the same God that's at work now, and is the same God that will be at work in the future. God isn't giving up his throne, and in addition to that, God's character isn't changing. And so as we look at the way that God interacted with people historically, it doesn't mean that he's going to do exactly the same things with us today. We're in a different time. We're in a different context. But the God that did these things in the book of Ruth is the same God that's going to be at work in our lives today. And so as we read this story, we're going to be able to learn a bit about God's character. And I'm, I'm excited to go through that with you. So let's start reading in verse 1. And it says, in the days when the judges ruled, and we need to stop. Because you need context. Now, the time of the judges is a period in Israel's history that is extraordinarily dark. This is one of the moral low points of Israel's history. This is after the conquest of Canaan and before a king is instated in Israel. And while a lot of us are probably familiar with the cycle of the judges where, you know, Israel sins, God judges them, Israel repents, God sends a judge, that judge dies, Israel sins, God judges them, Israel repents, God sends another judge, and on it goes. But it's actually not just a circle. It's a downward spiral. Where, over the course of the book of Judges, Israel's moral character is getting worse and worse. And the moral character of the judges that God sends are also getting worse and worse. You have an example in Gideon, where Gideon was a coward who tested God and he led Israel into idolatry. And then, after Gideon, we already talked for a few weeks about Samson's life. He wasn't exactly a stellar citizen. And at the end of the book of Judges, when you get to the last story of the book of Judges, after the last judge, I should say, the last few chapters are all about examining the moral character of the nation as a whole, and it is bankrupt. So when you see that this is taking place in the time of the Judges, if you don't understand what that means, you're going to miss some of the main lessons that you're supposed to be learning from the book of Ruth. And since I just kind of want to walk through this story with you, I'm going to give you the two main lessons up front. The first thing that we're going to learn is that there are faithful individuals in wicked nations, and this is going to impact the way that you think about historical events like God judging a nation. Just because God judges a nation does not mean that everyone in that nation was wicked, and even the righteous are often swept up in that. Jeremiah was in the siege of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar was at war with Zedekiah, even though Jeremiah was a righteous man. Daniel and his friends got carried off into exile because of the wickedness of Israel, but they didn't deserve it. So the first thing that we see that needs to impact the way that we view the world is that there are faithful individuals even in wicked nations. And so when you see something like God judging a nation, you might think to yourself, well, okay, what about the righteous people? And the second thing that we're going to learn from the book of Ruth is that God is able to be faithful to individuals in the groups he's judging. Even as Daniel and his friends were carried off into exile, God was protecting them and helping them. And these might be pertinent for us in a few decades. What happens in 20 years when God's judging the United States and we're asking ourselves, can God be faithful to me as this nation is crumbling? Because judgment comes quick. So I'm going to leave those up as we go through the story, and I just want to read these with you. So we're going to continue. It says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So we're in one of those judgment cycles. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And then both Mahlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And in this first section, we're introduced to the main character. And that main character, by the way, is not Ruth. The main character in the book of Ruth is Naomi. It's Naomi who went into the land of Moab. Naomi's husband died. Naomi's sons died. And in the book of Ruth, Naomi is the only character that has an arc. Her arc begins at the beginning of the book, ends at the end of the book. But Boaz and Ruth are both static characters. They don't change. The circumstance changes around them. Additionally, Naomi has more acts of agency in the book of Ruth, which is to say that she actually chooses her own way and her decisions impact the story. Naomi has more acts of agency in the book of Ruth than either Ruth or Boaz. So when I titled this message God and the Widow, I did not mean God and Ruth. This is a story about God's faithfulness to Naomi. And so Naomi is in a rough circumstance, man. Husband dead, sons dead in a foreign land. And so we continue. In verse 6, and then she arose with her daughters in law to return to, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters in law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters in law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you. In the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And in this situation, you can kind of see the way that Naomi is genuinely hurting. And in the midst of that pain, she's actively making the situation worse for herself. God left her with two daughters in law, and she's actively pushing them away. And yet, We understand why she's doing that. Because in verse 11, if we continue, it says, Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? We're going to explain a bit more about that later. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's looking at this situation, and Naomi is heading back to Israel, once again, wicked nation. Naomi is heading back to Israel, and she's heading back to Israel as a widow. In this time period, the way that a woman would be cared for is that she would either have her husband, her sons, a brother, a father, A man would have to be the one who was providing for her. Otherwise, widows were poor and they were vulnerable. And she knows that she's going back to a wicked nation. And she doesn't want that for her daughters-in-law. And so she pushes them away. But in verse 14, and then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And even in this circumstance where you see Naomi's pain, God isn't letting her isolate herself. He's making sure that Ruth stays with her. And in verse 15, Naomi tries a third time. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and this, this is a beautiful section. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And that. That is a powerful statement right there. That is a statement of love. That is a statement of loyalty. And people will, will words will refer to this as Ruth's conversion. And one thing that is absolutely certain, Ruth is making a commitment to Yahweh in this section. But it's important to note, this is not a blind conversion. Ruth was married into this family for a long time. It says that after they got married, they lived in Moab for 10 years. It's very likely that Ruth would have already converted before this, But what's absolutely certain is that even if this is her conversion, this is not a blind conversion. Ruth knows exactly the commitment that she's making right here. And that should be adding even more power to it. This isn't, you know, buying something that you can't pay for later. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And here we see God's second act of massive kindness to Naomi. Naomi has been gone from Israel in the land of Moab for at least 10 years. She could have come back to the same hills and landscape, but completely different people. How many other people would have left in the course of the famine? How many people would have died? How many people would have remembered her? And yet, in the midst of her pain, God is allowing her to make sure that Ruth is with her and God is having her return to Israel in community. People know who she is. People care about her even as she's getting back. And I, I got to say, I'm not minimizing the pain that Naomi is in. Naomi's husband is dead. Naomi's sons are dead. That is not minor. And by the way, Naomi rightly recognizes that God allowed that to happen. And so, in verse 20, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? A lot of times when we're facing these deep struggles, and when we are in pain, We're not necessarily looking at the situation and thinking, wow, look at all these ways that God's being good to me. Naomi's not looking at this situation seeing Ruth, and at this point, she doesn't realize the gift that Ruth is. She's not looking at this situation seeing Ruth and seeing the community. She's only feeling her pain, and that's a regular part of the human experience. That's how this goes, and something that's interesting is that one of the things we learn from this story is that being a God follower does not mean that life is easy. You can have people that they follow God and then bad things happen and they think to themselves, why is God letting this happen to me? But one of the things that we need to understand is that God's purpose in the life of a Christian is not that you have heaven now. Heaven comes later. This is a broken world. This world is full of suffering. And if you are a Christian, James says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, not if you encounter various trials, when. Time and time again in the New Testament, God is very clear being a Christian does not mean a life free from suffering, even suffering of the worst kinds. Life is broken. The promise that God gives us is not that life is without suffering. The promise that God gives us is that even in that suffering, he's with us. And even as Naomi is feeling pain, God is watching over her, even if she can't tell yet. And in verse 22, so Naomi returned. Did you notice it? Just in the previous verse, Naomi said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And literally the very next verse, the narrator is still referring to her as Naomi. (laughs) And here's the thing. Naomi's looking at her situation. She's feeling pain in the moment. Um, And she's saying, God's dealt bitterly with me, but God sees the whole story. We see a picture of where we are now, but God sees the whole story. And Naomi says, God has dealt bitterly with me. And God looks at her and says, no, I haven't. Your story's not over. I've got more in store. And so we continue. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Something I should note. Israel is in a land of wickedness. Israel is under God's judgment at this time. Moab is under more of God's judgment. As much, judgment as, like, as much judgment as Israel was under, Moab was in a much worse spot. Moab had established itself as an enemy of Israel. And so when we're talking about the fact that there are faithful individuals in wicked nations and God can be faithful to individuals in wicked nations, Ruth herself is also a massive example of that. But moving on. In chapter 2, or sorry, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. At the beginning of chapter 2, and now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, and we need to stop again. Because once again, you need context. I need you guys to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. Because one of the things that Ruth makes regular reference to is a law in Deuteronomy, and it's called the Law of Leverett Marriage. And so we're going to read that real quick because it's very important context for the things that are happening. And for us, as, you know, 21st century Christians, we might not know our Old Testament as well as a Jew would. But anyone reading Ruth at the time, this would have been popping directly into their heads. So we need to know what it is. So if you're there, starting in chapter 25, verse 5, it says, "If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside of the family to a stranger." her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel and so this is a system of levirate marriage where like if I married someone and then I died before having kids then like Jackson would marry her and then his firstborn son would, no one wants to be in this example but Jackson's not here to be upset <laughs> <laughs> So Jackson's firstborn son would legally be considered my son. And then his secondborn son would be legally considered his son. The firstborn son would get my inheritance. The secondborn son would get his inheritance. And this was a means by which to, first of all, care for the widow. Widows were vulnerable. Widows were poor. This was a means by which God provided for women in Israel. Additionally, this prevents one thing, for example, of All of the property in Israel over generations of people dying young ending up in the hands of one person. So this is making sure that land stays where God wants it with who God wants it to be with. So additionally, this law goes on, and it says that if a man refuses to marry the wife of his brother, then she goes to the elders, the elders call him over, and if he refuses to marry her still, then the guy uh, has his sandal removed, the woman spits in his face, and then he's forevermore known as him who had his sandal removed. Uh, That's important later. But if we're going to go back to Ruth now, now that you've got the necessary context, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's. Someone reading this is immediately going to think levirate marriage. It says Naomi had a relative of her husband, and I'm hearing there was someone who could marry Ruth. Okay, well, let's learn a bit more about this relative of her husband. He was a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, I want to comment on that word worthy. In Hebrew, that's two words in sequence. It essentially is a great man of power or a mighty man of greatness. And those two words used together is almost exclusively used of warriors. If you've ever read stories of David's mighty men, this is the description given to them. Uh, The word mighty man, that first one, it's almost exclusively used as warriors as well. And it is almost always used to describe capability. You're essentially a powerful man. Sometimes it's used to describe a wealthy man or an influential man. But if I say powerful man, you can be powerful because you have muscles on your muscles. You can be powerful because you're the CEO of a company. You can be powerful because you have political sway. And that's basically the idea this is capturing. This isn't necessarily talking about Boaz's character. This is talking about Boaz's affluence. This is describing Boaz as a prominent man. But there's something else it's doing in the book of Ruth specifically. In the book of Ruth, that second word, greatness, is only used to describe two people in the entire book. One is Boaz. Any guesses who the other one is? You can yell it out. That's right, Ruth. Um. (laughs) So the first time, it's used to describe Boaz. The second time, it's used to describe Ruth. And when this word is used to describe a woman, it is exclusively used to describe her character. So while that is not the meaning that it necessarily carries with a man, that is the meaning it carries with a woman. So on your second or third read-through, you're going to notice that the author is linking Boaz and Ruth as birds of a feather. This word describes Ruth, sorry, Boaz. It describes Ruth, and then it's used a third time to describe them together. So on your second or third read-through, you're going to notice this is talking about Boaz's character. But on your first read-through, all you're going to know is that Boaz is a prominent man. Now, here's the thing. You want a bit more than prominent man when you're thinking about who you're going to want to marry. That tells us nothing about the dude's character. What if he's a jerk? And so this chapter in chapter 2, it's going to be discussing Boaz's character and introducing him as a character. So in verse 2, And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And we need to stop again. I uh, promise this is the last time, but once again, you need context. Can you go to the Leviticus 19 slide? My clicker's not working. Okay, so in the Old Testament, in addition to having a system of lever at marriage, the Old Testament also had kind of like a system of welfare. This is being referenced in Ruth chapter 2, and we need to read this to know what's going on. It says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so in this system, This was leaving the fields partially ungathered so that people, like widows, could come and gather from them. But here's the thing. Uh, This, for example, does not say how far from the edge of your field you have to go. So I could, like, you know, how about just leave five inches from the edge of my field and leave that for the poor people. Here's the second thing. There is nothing in the Bible that explains how this would be enforced other than God enforcing it. So in this time of Israel's history, where people are notoriously wicked, how many people do you think are following this law? Not many. And in fact, we see that from what Ruth says. Because she says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She shouldn't have to find favor in someone's sight. Everyone in Israel, every landowner, should already be doing this. But she notes that if she's going to get food from this process, there's going to have to be someone special to provide it. So, that's important. And then back to the big ideas slide. Thank you. And so she goes on, and Naomi says to her, go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And here's the thing. In Hebrew, that is, she happened from chance to come. So it's really emphasizing the chance thing. But there's an understanding in the Bible that nothing is just chance. Proverbs says that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The book of Esther is an entire story of God defending his people just by happenstances. And at the end of the book, they establish the Feast of Lots, which is basically the Feast of Chance, to remember the time that God defended his nation essentially by the cast of a die. So when it says that there's this guy who can marry Ruth and who can provide for Ruth and Naomi, and then Ruth just happens onto his portion of the field, that's God at work. That's God bringing her right where she needs to be. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and then he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. And it's like, okay, things are starting pretty good. Boaz is talking like a God follower. But this is not definitive. Because in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 17 and 18 is outlining the way that in Israel, people would talk the talk and then live lives of complete apostasy. And we kind of recognize that. We've seen people that talk like Christians but don't live like Christians. You even have a word for it, Christianese where you can like come to church, and if you're coming to church and you're going through a hard time, maybe someone's sick or someone's dying or dead, and then someone comes up to you and they say, God is sovereign. Or maybe someone's a business owner, and they're talking about how they're going to go on this business trip. And everyone knows that when you talk about going on a business trip, the good Christian says, if the Lord wills. And you can have people who say these things, but there's no actual substance behind it, and it just feels fake. But there's a second group of people. People that when you're going through a hard time and they come to you and they put your hand on your shoulder and they say, hey, God is sovereign. You can tell they mean it. Or people that they tack on if the Lord wills, not because they're trying to say the Christian thing, but because that's actually how they think. Because when you're living life before God and you're constantly thinking about God, what you're constantly thinking about naturally comes out in what you say. And so... We're seeing Boaz talking like a God follower, but that's not definitive, but it is a good start. And so we're going to see, does what he say make it into what he does? And then Boaz answered, uh, verse 5, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. That phrase, except for a short rest, a more literal translation is, this is her short rest in the house. This is why that's pertinent. I want to paint the scene for you. Boaz comes to his field, he goes into the shack that's on the field, and as he's in the house, he looks over and he sees some girl over there that he doesn't recognize, so he nudges his, uh, his, his foreman and he says, uh, who is that? And then he says, oh, that's Ruth of the Moabite, this is her short rest in the house. And in this moment, we're about to see what kind of man Boaz is, because again, wicked nation. How is Boaz going to reply when he sees this widow who is in need? Let's see. So then he walks right over to her and Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Which is something else that we need to note. This chapter is specifically contrasting Boaz's character from the character of the rest of Israel. In Judges chapter 19, you have an example of a a city in Israel taking advantage of a vulnerable person in a pretty brutal way. And Ruth is a young widow with no man to care for her, out in the field alone, in a wicked nation. Boaz and Naomi make multiple references to the very real possibility of Ruth being assaulted. So Boaz is standing in contrast to the rest of his people. And not only is he allowing her to glean in his field, but if you keep reading, he says, stick with my young women. I have commanded my young men not to touch you. When you're thirsty, you're going to drink from the water that my servants draw. And he even commands his servants to give her more food on top of what she gathers. He invites her over to eat with them and gives her so much food that she is satisfied and has some left over. So Boaz is not only obeying Leviticus 19, he is going beyond it. Boaz is generous. And something that's important to note, at this stage in the story, there is absolutely no indication that there is any romantic interest between Boaz and Ruth in either direction. This is entirely a statement about Boaz's character. He's not just saying the Christian things. I know he wasn't a Christian. He's not just saying the God-following things. But it's waking its way into his hands, waking its way into it, making its way into his hands. Lulz. All right. And then if we continue on, so she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So, so Ruth comes back with such a haul that Naomi immediately recognizes someone was generous. And now Ruth answers. Uh, so she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz which there's something very cool that the translation preserves, that entire extra long string where Naomi says, who'd you work with today? And Ruth could have just said, Boaz. But instead she says, the man in whose field I worked with today, his name is Boaz. Like it's got that whole lead up and then all of a sudden, we know that Naomi knows who Boaz is and we already know that we're supposed to be looking at this as someone who can marry Ruth. And so now in verse 20... Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And at this point, Naomi is looking at Ruth the way that my mom looks at me when there's an Italian girl in church. (laughs) Like, (laughs) we all know what's on Naomi's mind. But in this moment, We were already aware of who Boaz was, and now Ruth knows. And now the rom-com's getting going. But it continues on, and Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you should go out with his young women, lest in another field you should be assaulted. Naomi and Boaz have no illusions about where they are. But we're going to skip ahead to verse 3. So Ruth is gathering with Boaz for the entirety of the harvest and at this point Ruth is able to continue evaluating Boaz's character and Boaz is able to continue evaluating Ruth's and at this point there's probably romantic interest on the behalf of Ruth towards Boaz but Boaz is like a black box we don't know how he feels But in verse 3 or sorry chapter 3 Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. In other words, make yourself pretty. uh, Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. (laughs) Get this, guys. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. That's just funny. (laughs) Um, And I know there's probably some singles in here that are thinking to themselves, wait, does that actually work? (laughs) Ruth did it. If you want to tell me how that goes for you, I'd love to hear. (laughs) But one of the things that's kind of an important lesson to glean from this is that not every command in the Bible is a command to you and me. This is not the Bible saying that if you want to propose the Christian way, you need to sneak into where he's sleeping, uncover his feet, and see how that goes. (laughs) Would not recommend, um, but if you try it, I would love to hear how that goes. (laughs) So Ruth says, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And then this is hilarious as well. Um, At midnight the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? that's just funny all right and then she answered i am ruth your servant spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer and at this moment the rom-com is tense because ruth is confessing her feelings she is asking boaz to marry her and we're about to see what boaz says the tension is real And then he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. He's saying you could have gone for a guy that you could have enjoyed, but you instead chose a man of character who can provide for you and your mother-in-law. And now, now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. And all of a sudden, the tension is gone. Boaz says, yes, we are feeling good. But then he ruins it. Um, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. And we're like, no, there wasn't supposed to be a button that sentence, Boaz. <laughs> what are you doing? We want the Boaz-Ruth relationship to go, but there's some other dude getting in the way. <laughs> and he says, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. And at this moment, we have been rooting for Boaz since the beginning of chapter 2. We don't want some other dude to come in and marry Ruth. And so all of that tension that disappeared when he said yes, it's right back. And that cliffhanger should be illegal. (sighs) But then Boaz gives her a gift to send back with her to Naomi. And in chapter 4 we see the reaction we see the interaction between boaz and the man and it says now boaz went up to the gate and sat down there and behold the redeemer of whom boaz had spoken came by which this is also hilarious in the hebrew the name for that guy is literally a particular certain man so the narrator is already noting that this guy's name is not important which tells you a bit about how the narrator feels about him and that's only going to get confirmed So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And he said to the redeemer, "Uh, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought that I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and then I come after you. And then he said, I will redeem it. But here's the thing. This guy didn't realize that Boaz was pulling a big sneak. He didn't realize that Boaz is about to unload the crafty. Because Boaz says, then Boaz said, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. This guy thought that he was just going to get some land. He thought he was going to be able to get that much richer. And then all of a sudden he finds out he has to get the widow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a foreigner, at that. Mm-hmm. Israel's got a racism problem at this time, just as they consistently do. And this guy, who was totally down to get richer, is not down to care for the needs of the vulnerable. And we see a hard contrast again between Boaz and the people of his nation. In the people of his nation, even if there's no other field where a widow is able to glean, in Boaz's field a widow can glean. Even if there's no one else who will care for the protection and safety of a widow, Boaz cares for the protection and safety of a widow and when this guy was totally down to get richer until it meant also marrying this girl, Boaz isn't primarily motivated by the field. Boaz is motivated by the needs of Ruth, and the field is, if anything, is just a small bonus. There's a very different line between Boaz and the people of Israel. And one of the things that we can learn is that even if everyone around you is unfaithful, you can be faithful. Even if every other church isn't faithful, we can be faithful. And that doesn't mean pridefully doing so. That means having a commitment that doesn't rest in the peer pressure around you. And Boaz was that kind of man. So the guy says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Yeah, I'm sure. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel, and so they exchanged sandals. Here's why it's significant that they told you that that was a cultural custom. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 25 what happened to a man who refused to marry the widow? He had his sandal removed, and he got spit in the face. This is specifically noting that this is not the judgment of Deuteronomy 25, this is a cultural practice at the time. So that's valuable to note. And then, Boaz said to the elders and all his people in verse nine, "You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Mahlon, and also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Mahlon. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place." And then all the people who were at the gate the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, and may you act worthily. That's the third use of that word that I said describes Ruth. Sorry, Boaz Ruth and then both of them. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. And all of that tension that came right back after we found out about Mr. So-and-so is right back. We're getting our happy ending, the rom-coms, getting the rose-colored glasses on, throw the rose petals. And in verse 13, Seboaz so took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This is interesting. And then the woman said to Naomi, not Ruth. Naomi went out full. Her life was decimated. She came back empty and bitter. And she didn't see the kindnesses of God in that circumstance. But God saw the whole story. And in this situation, we have seen that even in the midst of a wicked nation, even in the midst of individual suffering, God was faithful to Naomi. And God was faithful to Ruth and Boaz as well. They're people too. But the narrator gives particular emphasis to Naomi. And so we learn... That God can be faithful to us in suffering, and that God can be faithful to us even if he's judging the group that we're in, just like he did with Naomi. But now, these next few verses should hit you like a truck. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And then we break into a genealogy. And especially if you've read your Old Testament a fair bit, this style of genealogy should be very familiar to you. It says, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David there is a third lesson that we are learning from this genealogy. If you want to go to the slide that has like a map of the biblical history, like a timeline. So up here, I'm not going to go through all of this because uh, time, but this is a quick and dirty uh, his summary of the entirety of uh, the Bible. In Genesis, we have the origins of the universe, the origins of mankind from Genesis 1 to 11. Genesis 12 through 50, we have the origins of Israel specifically. Exodus has Israel coming out of the uh, nation of Egypt. And then we have the wilderness wanderings in Numbers. And then they conquer Canaan, time of the judges, goes into the united kingdom, the divided kingdom. And essentially that goes on until you get to the church age where we are. And then eventually it all ends with the return of Christ. And then we go into what's called the eternal state. And that's like the brief history of the Bible. But then the storyline of the Bible is that little thing that you see under it. Because in Genesis chapter 3, the human race falls into sin and all creation falls with them. And in 3.15, God says, I'm going to send a seed. Someone who will bruise the head of the serpent, although his heel will be bruised by the serpent. And the entire story of the Old Testament is following that seed. We find out that that seed isn't just coming from Adam, it's coming from Seth. And then it's not just coming from Seth, it gets narrowed down to Noah. And then it gets narrowed down to Abraham. And then it gets narrowed down to Judah. And then it gets narrowed down to David. And in the book of Matthew, we get this kind of genealogy again, and we find the Messiah is Jesus Christ himself. This is wild. And here's why. I thought we were just reading a story about some random widow in Israel. I thought we were just reading some rom-com about a dude and a girl back in the olden days. And then I find out at the end, no, God was working something so much bigger than any of them realized. Because if you're reading the book of Judges, one of the things that you should rightly be thinking about is how can God bring the Savior of the entire world out of this wicked nation? When the nation is getting this wicked, does God still even want to? Or is God going to throw in the towel, give up, decide that we aren't worth it? And what you see right after finishing the book of Judges is you read the book of Ruth and you see that in the background where you didn't see it, God was still providing for the salvation of all mankind. God was still bringing the Messiah into the world so that Jesus could live, Die and rise again so that we can repent of our sin, turn to God, and through faith in His sacrifice, be brought into heaven. And so, the third thing that we see, if you want to get to the final slide, is that God works cosmic events through the lives of individuals. Each of us has a role to play in this much larger story. Like, one of the cool things about reading a story like Ruth, the book of Ruth is our story. Not in the sense that we are living in the book of Ruth, but in the sense that our story has continuity with the book of Ruth. The same God that was watching over the book of Ruth is watching over our lives. And in the same way that this human history has been going on from that time then, it continues now. And each of us has a part in it. And in the same way that Boaz and Ruth and Naomi didn't see what God was using their lives to accomplish, we don't necessarily see what God's using our lives to accomplish. And it can be far larger than we expect. So we are given this encouragement that there are faithful individuals in wicked nations and we can be those faithful individuals in our wicked nation. That even when God is judging a wicked nation, he can be faithful to the individuals in it. So if we see things going down the pipes, we know that God can still watch over us on an individual level. And we see that our lives, God can use them to work out cosmic events. We don't have to be sideline characters. We're living in God's story, and that's actually a wonderful thing. So with that, let's bow our heads, pray it out and finish out the service, and then, like true Americans, watch stuff blow up. <laughs> Lord, thank you for the bur- book. Thank you for the Book of Ruth. Thank you that you give us stories where you aren't just giving us instructions about how to live life and how to think about things, but you can allow us to watch things work out in the lives of other people. I pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness, not only to Ruth, but to us. Help us to be faithful individuals in the way that Ruth and Boaz were, even in the midst of a broken circumstance. And Lord, help us to be faithful with the lives that you have given us, because you will make that bear fruit. Lord, I pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.